Hey everyone, my name's Jen. I'm a licensed minister, a certified trauma-informed coach, and your host. Today we're here to save the pain. podcast brought to you by New Course Coaching, a trauma-informed coaching company focused on trauma recovery. Welcome back, everybody. Today's episode is special for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Memorial Day is today. We want to take time to honor the families who have lost loved ones that were serving in our military forces. But number two, today's guest is Isaac Lopez, who is also very special, not only because he is our first male guest on Say the Pain, but he was the best man in my wedding and Jeremiah's wedding too. Unfortunately, he now lives in Lancaster, Ohio, which is quite far from central Iowa, but he is married to his wonderful wife, Elizabeth. He now has two children, works as a robotics welding technician. He and Elizabeth help in their church on multiple fronts, otherwise known as the filler inners. And he is also a veteran who served in the U.S. Army for six years. And I do understand that there is a difference between Memorial Day and that we observe in the U.S. Memorial Day in the month of May. And we have Veterans Day, which is observed in November, and that those are different. But I do feel like today's episode will allow a greater understanding of why it is important to honor Memorial Day. So all that being said, Isaac, we are so glad that you are here. Hi, glad to be here. Isaac and I met first. So Isaac and his wife, Elizabeth, and my husband and myself all went to college together in the great state of Minnesota. But Isaac and I were actually the first two out of all four of us to actually know each other. My husband came at the second semester. And so Isaac, myself, and my husband were all in the same class. And his wife was, I believe, a year behind us, right? It was, she was two years. She was two years behind. Yes. So I got to know Elizabeth later than I knew Isaac. But I am familiar with their family. Anyhow... I did mention that you are a veteran from the U.S. Army, and so I don't take it lightly that you're willing to come on and share a little bit of your experience. So usually on Say the Pain, we kind of deep dive right in. So where would you like to start? We could start in high school because I joined pretty early in life. I think most people do. So in high school, I went to uh, Humboldt Senior High School in St. Paul, Minnesota, graduated in 2005. But during high school, I was part of the JROTC program that they had there. 
And I actually spend a lot of time with them. They did just activities after school and during school. And we had field trips and like tournaments. I spend a lot of time with it. It was an army ROTC program. And they taught us a lot of like basic, just basic things from the military, such as reading maps, land navigation, marching, drone ceremony, just stuff like that. But I enjoyed it. And I feel like that's where... I kind of, or I decided to, um, because of that, or it influenced me to kind of join the military because I did enjoy the program and I was like, you know what? I could do this for a living for a while. Now I, I wasn't good at school at all. Like, especially with, uh, with English, my English was terrible. I, I really had to make up a lot of classes, English classes in my senior year. But yeah, overall, I wasn't, I wasn't good in school. So with this, uh, joining the military, I think that was a good thing for me because it was just a path I could just take and learn more from that. So yeah, in my, between my junior and senior year in July is when I enlisted. Usually they have a, a program where, um, if you're caught up on your grade, on your credit and you're doing well in, in school, you could actually join uh, between your junior and senior year. And then that summer, instead of having it off, you could do the basic training. I don't know if they still do that now, but back then at 17, you could do the basic training and then return, uh, finish your senior year. And after your senior year, you could go off on the advanced individual training and then off to whatever um, unit that the, uh, that you would be assigned to. So that was uh, the idea with me, but I was behind with credits. So instead I just went through the testing and the physical and all of the documentation and swearing in, in that summer, but I did not go to basic training until after my senior, after I graduated really. So once I was, I graduated, that's when I was scheduled to, to take off for basic training and advanced individual training for that. So. It was kind of interesting, especially because I remember my recruiter. Um, okay. So my senior year, I had to take evening and night classes to make up the English classes so that I could try to graduate on time. And for some reason, my counselor and I, we just missed one English credit. And when it was all said and done at the end of the school year, we noticed that it was one credit that I was missing. Um, therefore I had to make it up at summer school after, um, after my senior year. Well, my recruiter got mad about that and pretty much went into the office of the, um, cause I had to tell her we were, we were in communication with the, with each other and how schooling was going. And I'm guessing it's more for keeping, uh, keeping track or for me have to have a spot in the basic training program. They just had to plan in advance. But yeah, she went over and after I told her, she, my recruiter went over to the counselor and pretty much chewed her out for missing that one credit. So your counselor entered basic training at that point. Yeah. And the funny part is that she was also an ex-drill sergeant. She did that for a while too. So it was kind of, it was interesting because I was, I was just like what a 17 year old kid just outside the class or the office. And she was in there just chewing her out. And like, she was just, I don't know. It was, it was kind of funny if I, if I remember just looking back at it, I'm like, wow. Cause they had to reschedule the basic training. Um, cause they assumed that I was going to graduate on time. 
And because I didn't, they had to push it back for the end of the summer. So that's kind of funny. But yeah, that, that summer I finished, uh, finished that last credit I needed. And then, and then I took off to basic trading. Uh, at basic training, I went to Fort Jackson, what, South Carolina, I believe. I did basic training there, and I believe I also did the advanced individual training there, if I remember right. But I, I joined as a, a food service operator, which is pretty much a cook. So I did the, uh, actually, this is something I, so I had basic training. I it, uh, think it's a nine-week program now, or back then it was. And it's split up into three phases, like three weeks. And during each phase, there's, I guess, the the environment. Uh, the drill sergeants have to make the environment either really stressful or or however they make it. So at the beginning phase was the red phase. It's when everything is stressful. You're getting yelled at and left and right, and you're not sure what's going on. But after that, the, uh, the white phase, um, you're more doing a lot of field training and trying to apply things that they taught you in class. And then the white phase, it's where everybody's more lenient and they're more focused on, on the tasks at hand in the field and getting ready for the final field training and then just getting ready for graduation for basic training. But I remember one time we were, um, this was, it's interesting because in, during the red phase, this one guy, so at night we always had to have a security guard so one of the privates had to stay up and just patrol the area, making sure everybody's at, in their bed and stuff like that. And the platoon pretty much rotates through there. But there was this one time I remember that at one in the morning, we noticed that one person was missing. So that morning they started searching for him. And then all of us, like we all got chewed out and started getting smoked or uh, we had to do a lot of physical training really is what getting smoked is. So we're doing push-ups and whatever random exercises because we failed to keep accountability of everybody when it was just this person that decided to sneak out and try to run away. Well, they did find him at a bus stop and they tackled him and pretty much arrested him. So that was, so we just heard that um, after a while because we didn't see any of it. We just heard that like, yeah, he was tackled, he was arrested. And then we never heard from him ever again. So you didn't have to account for him anymore? No, but they probably, uh, I don't know, they probably just took him out because he wasn't fit or he was trapped out or whatever was the case. But yeah, after after that, he was off of our our roster. You talked about advanced individual training that you took. Yeah, so the advanced individual training is pretty much teaching you how to do your the job that you chose. So the first one was was a food service uh, operator. So it was pretty much I went to cook school. I think it was, well, how long was that? Maybe Maybe like three weeks, I believe. And it was... One, a lot of physical training in the morning and the evenings because um, we all we did was go into class and cook and eat. So we did that. But it was more just going, it was a cook school. So we just went, we cooked whatever they wanted us to do. And we looked at the recipes that the military had. And then we just cooked whatever they said. That was really it. It was somewhat easy, I believe. Did you There's... choose being a cook or did they like place you in that? No, they... Um, I chose to do that. That was the initial, um, I don't know why I, I thought it would be fun, but then we did, uh, learn about all the kitchen trailers and the mobile kitchen trailers that they had. It's like pretty much mobile kitchens. 
on a trailer that gets towed around. But it was interesting because like, we're just learning all these things, how to set them up and break them down. Like, I didn't think I'd see them out in the field and being used, but they were there. They use them. I don't know why I thought they wouldn't use them, but, but they do. <laughs> but yeah, so after I finished the AIT, they sent me back to Minnesota. And in Minnesota, I joined the 147th Personnel Service Battalion, which looking back, I think it was just a lot of personnel just doing paperwork, the whole battalion, and we just supported whatever they needed in, in the kitchen, I guess. So I did join as a National Guard. So they, I know there's like the, the National Guard, the active duty, and then the Army Reserve, different parts of the, of the Army. But I joined as the Minnesota National Guard. I was in, I believe it was Rosemont, uh, Minnesota. Once a, a month, we'd spend a weekend working in the armory. So like the whole unit would show up once a month and they just work for that weekend. And then two weeks out of the year, we would go up to uh, Camp Ripley or any of the larger um, armories within the state and just do uh, training, um, whether it be like uh, weapon systems or taking a PT test or or land navigation, just like basic knowledge, training, maintaining vehicles, stuff like that. But we would do that uh, two weeks out of the year in the summer. So I, I think at, at the end of the, close to the end of 06, uh, 2006, we were informed that we were going to get deployed. The unit was going to be activated. And usually what they do with the National Guard is they, they would activate the unit and then they would attach them to a bigger uh, regular army unit. It's usually how how they, it happens, but at the time we didn't know. So we just were given orders that to get ready to deploy and we were going to get ready to deploy to Afghanistan. So we, we kind of started prepping for that every weekend we showed up, we just getting equipment ready. And we did spend, uh, one week in, uh, camp Atterbury, Indiana for training. And there we did a lot of weapon systems training and vehicle maintenance and maneuvering and stuff like that, just the basic combat training stuff. So we did that for about a week um, where they would let the unit run missions. And then at the end of the mission, we would come back and do after actions review and get feedback on what, how we did and what we could improve on. So we did that for a week before getting deployed. So in 2007, in January, the unit was deployed to Afghanistan. We arrived in Bagram Airfield, Afghanistan. And that, that was the, uh, the base that we would be assigned to. So our battalion was assigned to Bagram. Once we arrived there, we noticed that, or at least I did that, that we weren't going to be cooking over there. They, they had a lot of contractors on the base. It was a pretty big base. I think, I don't know if it was one of the first ones made, but it was a big base. It housed a lot of different countries. And I guess the military is from different countries on the base. Uh, we weren't there to cook. Well, I was um, going to ask, like when, when you signed up for the National Guard, was there an understanding that you were going to be deployed shortly after? Was that, I mean, because 9-11 happened in 01, but yeah. I mean, so you. Well, we knew, the, yeah, we knew the possibility of getting deployed was there. We knew that they mentioned it, but then they also mentioned that like, for example, in the National Guard, there were people that have served the National Guard for what, 20 to 40 years, whatever it is, and never get deployed. Like that is a possibility too. But we knew that the possibility of getting deployed is there. I didn't know 
until they actually dropped the orders in on the unit. And they, they gave us, um, I think six months to a year in advance notice pretty much to get ready. So it was, I don't know if that's a long or a short time, but that was the time that we were given. And then you end up in Afghanistan. Yes. Yeah. We ended up in Afghanistan in Bagram Airfield and it was, I don't, I don't know what I expected, but that's, that's what it was. And the base there, that's a green zone is what we would, I guess, call. There really isn't a lot of combat on the base or there really wasn't, but, but yeah, we were, we arrived there and we learned that we were going to be cooking, um, because they have contractors, um, cooking for us and they had a lot of contractors doing other random tasks throughout the base. So we were all split up. Um, the whole unit was split up. At least the support unit, the actual, like the officers stayed in Bagram and then the finance department that uh, was with us, they all stayed there. So the admin people that actually did the admin jobs, they stayed at Bagram, but everybody else that would support them, they pretty much got split up. Some of them were sent over to Qatar or Kuwait to do whatever they did over there. As for me, I was assigned to initially to the air force and to the, uh, to the airfield. So what I, for the first couple months, I would say, all I did was count soldiers coming in and count soldiers leaving the battle zone, I guess, because this was the main hub where soldiers would come in and land, and then they would leave back from deployment. So I would, uh, a typical day was going to the airfield and just waiting for an airplane to arrive with soldiers. Once they get off the airplane, they would get on the bus and they'll come over to the terminal and I would go out there, introduce myself, retrieve all of their military IDs. And then once I have all of their IDs, I would go inside the office and start scanning everybody into the system. Once I finished scanning everybody, and it was maybe hundreds at a time, like sometimes up to 100, 200 people, other times like 50, but it'd be a lot of scanning. But yeah, once I was done scanning everybody in, I would just give them the pile of IDs back to the sergeant in charge, and then they would just get distributed back to their soldiers. And once that's done, they would go off and doing whatever they came to do. And then it's pretty much the opposite when scanning people out. So whenever uh, a unit would be um, going back to the States, they would go through the uh, through the airport, give us all their IDs. We'll scan them into the manifest. And once we're done, we dish back their IDs and then they can get on the bus to go get on the airplane to leave. But yeah, that's really what I did for the first couple months. So you arrived in 07, January, right? Yeah. Early 07? Yeah, early, like the first quarter of 07. And so you were there for a couple months doing that. And then what, I mean, because how long were you there that first deployment? Uh, that first deployment, I spent a year. So the first, uh, I guess you could say the first quarter of the deployment I spent with the Air Force. And then I think they replaced us with contractors, I think, but I didn't really see it. So they pretty much just came to us and they're like, hey, we need to send someone out into Fob Fenty. And I, I guess I was chosen because they needed help over there. So I was chosen. Uh, I left Bagram and I went to uh, what was called Fob Fenty in near Jalalabad, um, Afghanistan. And what I was assigned to do there was also with the, in the airfield, but this was run by the army and I really unloaded airplanes with forklifts, any mail that would come in, I would sort to the units and then distribute them. 
So like we would unload cargo and then load any cargo that's, that would be leaving the base. We were also uh, given a hut or, or like a little wooden, I guess, a hut. I don't know. We call them huts. But that's where we lived in. Like it was like a little wooden house. Today, they're called tiny houses and they're heavily coveted. So you just didn't know you were living in luxury. We just didn't have the solar panels, I guess. <laughs> so I, I arrived there and that little squad, I guess I could say, it was a squad of like five people, a sergeant and then a staff sergeant that was uh, in charge of it. And this was pretty much the, the male movement team, which would just move cargo around back and forth. And then we would also take any mail that would go into the States and any mail that would arrive from the States uh, to distribute to the soldiers. So I was the, the post office there, you could say, the mailman. We also, in that little hut that we had, half of it was our living quarters and the other half was the post office. And in that post office, we'd pretty much uh, inspect any box that the soldiers would bring. So like if they want to send whatever it is home, like clothes or something that they won't need, um, they'd bring it to the post office or even letters. If they want to write letters to their loved ones, they would bring the letters to us and we'd stamp them and do all the USPS customs inspection do all that, and then we'll send it out in bags, pretty much. But if they brought a box, we would have to inspect it completely and see what it is that they're sending out, making sure it's, it's not uh, contraband. And then once we saw that it was fine, we'd seal up the box, put the label on, and then send it out. So that was kind of interesting. And, it, and that was really what we did for the rest of the deployment. But in between, it wasn't really only Fob Fenty there. It was also, I think, about 20 other different forward operation bases. So if there was a unit out in the closer to the front lines, we would uh, also deliver the mail there. So the mail would come in, um, it would, it would get sorted out a little bit out in Bagram and then sent out to us. And then once we received it, we, it would have a label as to which fob it's going to. And then we would either go out through a helicopter or a convoy and actually deliver um, the mail or whatever cargo we had to that one fob or, or forward operation base there, which was kind of interesting because it got us out of the, uh, the routine of just inspecting boxes and being the mailman and unloading airplanes and then sorting mail. We'd actually be out for maybe like a day or two, three days at the fob and then We'd collect whatever mail that they would have that would want to be sent home. We'll bag it up and then we'll bring it back to our, the FOB Fenty base. And then from there, we would load them up to the airplanes and back to Bagram and back to the States. So it was, uh, it was kind of interesting, but I did a lot of helicopter flights pretty much. So we flew in Blackhawks or Chinooks out to deliver the mail or cargo, and then we'd come back. One thing I liked is that we, I got to see the the actual, the country there from the air into a lot of mountains, really, fields. But it was just different scenery. Yes, it was, it was different, especially when we went through the um, convoy, because we would have to find a convoy that's going back and forth, whether it be like a, like just the patrol, we would add a vehicle with, uh, with me in it, obviously more people, but like, if there is a seat there, I would take it and then just go there and we would drive around town until we got to the, the base. Um, these were more local bases that were nearby, but like the further ones over in mountains or areas like that, then we would obviously take a helicopter and for that. So you went from being the cook to being the postmaster. Yeah, pretty much. 
it, it was an interesting deployment. I don't know what the, the, I didn't know what to expect for the first deployment, but that's, that's pretty much what I did. So there were times where we would go into the uh, Coringal Valley and find a fob there and we would land and this, and it, it would almost be like an outpost. Um, so they would just have an airfield just for helicopters to land. And I would land there and sometimes it would be like a hot zone where either they've been attacked um, like a couple of days ago or, or that there's an attack that's imminent or whatever it is. But the outposts, um, they would get more, uh, more combat um, through there because they were out in the line. But there was this one time where we land in, landed at the, uh, on the post. Like we had a chaplain. It was more like a support kind of uh, trip. So we went with the chaplain and it was me uh, trying to collect all their mail. Every now and then I'd, I'd have pen and paper and be like, hey, if you write a letter, like I'll send it out kind of thing. Like I'll send it home. We spent maybe like an hour or two there. And then out of nowhere, they're like, hey, we're getting intelligence that somebody's coming up and we need you guys out of here now. Especially because if there's a chaplain's there and just non-combat MOSs or, or, or soldiers, I think a lot of it would be like, they don't want to have to think about us because we're, we're not really there all the time. So now we're like extra burden to the whole company there. The helicopter showed up or we heard it coming. So we all worked together in packing everything. And once the helicopter arrived, like we just threw everything on the helicopter and then we took off. After we took off later on, I heard that they were also that the, that company was attacked and they had to pretty much defend the, the post, but stuff like that happened a few times um, during the first deployment, but it was, it was, it was an interesting deployment, just delivering cargo and bringing it back. So. Cause you were technically not active duty as like the sign on when you signed on. So I was still part of national guard, but we were, once we become, we get our orders, we would be activated as a unit. And then the unit that was there. It was the 82nd Airborne Division. I don't recall the actual unit that was there, but we were attached to an 82nd Airborne Division and we pretty much uh, worked with them. Um, that was a year. Yes, that was a year. And then looking back now, it was also interesting that when I arrived back to Jalalabad or the FOB Fancy, they were actually changing out the, I think the 10th Mountain was leaving and then the... Um, the 173rd Airborne unit was arriving. But after a while, I heard the time was extended from, I, I think, 12 months deployment to 15 months deployment. So because of that extension, some people had to stay longer. But at the time, like everybody was like, well, we're almost ready to go. We've, we've done the 12 months, but then now we've been extended. So we have to stay longer. And looking back, it was, it was interesting because sometimes whenever you get deployed, you always have an advanced unit or they have a unit that would uh, pretty much get everything ready to receive the, the equipment or stuff like that. That team had already left back to the States to get stuff ready from the, from the 10th mountain group. And after the extension, they were pretty much told that they had to come back to the combat zone over to Afghanistan, which I, I think that was like a terrible thing, getting deployed for 12 months. And then you're like, all right, well, I'm done with the deployment. I go back home. And then next thing you know, they're like, hey, uh, we've been extended. So you'd have to come back for three more months. 
that just seems like a terrible idea and a terrible experience. But that's what the 10th Mountain was experiencing when we arrived to that new location at Fab Fenty as we helped them move other cargo around. So that, that kind of, it kind of sucked. That's, that's how it was. Was that at the beginning of your deployment or at the end? I was close to the middle, maybe like the fifth month into my deployment. So fast forward ahead to the end of your deployment. So yeah, so at the end of this first deployment, we really just got replacements, went back to Bagram. We gathered up as the 147th uh, Personnel Service Battalion Unit, and then we just went back to Minnesota. It was like a, what, 36-hour fly. Once we arrived to the Twin Cities over in Minneapolis and St. Paul, they had an escort to escort us back to the armory. And it was, it was a, like a state trooper um, that would escort the bus back to the, to the armory. Um, once arriving to, back to the armory, we had family there and we unloaded uh, everything we were carrying and just uh, started unpacking everything and getting everything back into wherever it, it was going to go. So af after getting back, I kind of enjoyed the time, the deployment. I know with every military experience, everything is different, even the individual like everything will vary. But that one deployment, it was kind of nice. So I, I enjoyed it that I wanted to actually go active duty now. So I, I asked for permission through, through my chain of command. And I was like, hey, I'd like to transfer to the active duty from the National Guard. And because they are financed and differently, I had to get permission and released from the National Guard to re-enlist into active duty. So as I was doing that, I picked the, the MOS that I picked was a 11 Bravo, which is an infantryman. I also picked to go to go to airborne school after that. And my commander, he, he was, he was fine with it. He was like, sure, we'll like, we'll let you like follow your your dreams or your passion or whatever you want to do, like we'll, we'll be for it. So they, they signed off the papers fine. Like they, they didn't ask questions much. So like later after the deployment in 2008, I believe I re-enlisted into active duty. And because I enlisted as an infantryman, I was sent to Georgia, the school of the infantry there. And that training, when they do the basic training there for the soldiers, they combine the basic training and AIT together. So instead of just being a nine week course, I believe it would be like a 12, I think 12 to 15 weeks. I think it's more like 12, but yeah, they combine both of those together. So it's not separated but just because the work overall, it's, it's pretty much the same as basic training. You just get more experience in using all the knowledge and the stuff that you learn in basic training, you actually use it more often um, as an infantryman. So yeah, I enlisted there. I did have to go back to basic training. I think we went in as, it was like in the middle, in the middle of their, the session, we were added to their, to their roster. And we just, we completed the second half of the basic training and then went into the advanced individual training and finished that. So this one was, uh, I guess it was more demanding, a little bit more physically, just because it's, it's the infantry. That's all they do. They just stay fit, really, and learn their weapon systems and their combat drills, the battle drills and stuff like that. But they, they stay on top of that. So we had to learn that again, uh, like a refresher and just remember all that. Once I was done with the basic training and advanced individual training, then we would go off to... Um, to the uh, airborne school and airborne school was uh, 
was about a week long. But before that, we'd have to wait for an actual opening for, for the school. So I think in between basic training and AIT and airborne school, we were assigned to a golf company. And in that, in that company, we, we were pretty much waiting for, for a position at, at the airborne school. So during those two weeks, all we did was go in and doing details throughout the base over in, in Georgia. So we'd go and mow the lawn, weed whack, clean out bathrooms, empty out trash cans, go out into the, um, like right outside the base into the, um, highways and pick up trash, just random details. What we did for about two weeks until the, um, uh, a position was, uh, opened over in, in airborne school. So that was kind of interesting. And like, so when we noticed that we were going to be waiting for about two weeks, there was a slot for javelin school that some people decided to join or or attend. I, on the other hand, decided not to. I was like, no, I don't, I'm just going to stay here, keep doing whatever and, until we wait um, for airborne school. So, so some people got the chance to do that. I chose not to, uh, but at airborne school, we, it's only a week long and we pretty much learn how to jump out of airplanes and, and use parachutes. And we learn how to rely on our parachutes and trust the equipment and all of that. So by the end of the airborne school, we would have had uh, to had five jumps out of uh, a C-17, I believe it was, it was a C-17 that they used. So we jumped during the day or during the night or whatever it was. But we'd also have, uh, before that, we'd do a lot of physical training so that you can actually pull down on the, on the parachute uh, or the canopy, try to control the canopy a little bit. And we also had the, the towers that I believe they are not used anymore. At the time we would use them, which was, was a parachute attached to one of the towers and they would lift it up to whatever height the tower was with a man just hanging on the parachute. So the parachute would be open, uh, the man attached on the bottom, and then they would pick it up all the way up and then they would release the parachute really. So the guy would just fall. It was more just to simulate, like, this is what it is to fall and to land. There had been times that when they use the parachutes or the towers, I mean, the wind will change. And instead of coming uh, off of and away from the tower, the parachute will go back into the tower and pretty much collapse the, par the parachute and the guy would just fall or get stuck on the tower. And I, I don't know, I think that just happened too often and they saw it as a safety risk. So they just removed that from the program. But the towers are still there. Um, they didn't tear those down. Did you experience the tower at all? No, they, um, I didn't, which was great because I am afraid of heights and that would be terrible. Not that jumping out of an airplane is terrible, but I didn't want to go through it. And the day that we were doing the tower, because they had to stay on schedule. So the day that it was tower day where everybody just goes through the tower, the wind picked up and they just, we waited a little bit and I don't think they wanted to wait and the weather wasn't going to get any better. So they just decided, I think a few of us got from the class, a few of them did get to go through it, but by the time it was, it was my turn, they, they just shut it down for the day. So, so that you, was great. Yeah. Um, so you, you got to skip that portion. Yes. Which I enjoyed. And that training happened where? That was still in, uh, what is it? In Fort Benning, Georgia. 
Okay. So like the whole basic training and advanced individual training and airborne school, all that was in Fort Benning, Georgia. So after I was done with uh, the airborne school, the graduation happened, I got uh, my wings. That's when they assigned me over to the unit that I was going to support, which was in Alaska. So over there was the 25th uh, Infantry. It was a parachute infantry division up in Alaska. So I was assigned there and then I pretty much took off to Alaska and arrived to the unit there. Funny thing about it is that once I arrived a few weeks later or, or months, I, I, I don't recall the timeline, but we were set to deploy again to Afghanistan. Um, so we had orders to deploy and we had to start prepping to deploy. So we went, we flew down for training to California. I believe it was uh, NTC over there. I don't recall the, the, the terms, but um, we did training for, for a few weeks over there. And it was more uh, trying to learn how to work as a team together, especially with the new soldiers that arrived to the unit, which uh, I was one of them. The training there is pretty much, uh, they try to simulate a deployment kind of. So they have, uh, they have soldiers that are, I guess they would, they would call them op four. I think that's for the opposition force, which is pretty much the enemy. So we, they had soldiers playing as the enemy against our unit is what it was. And we would just run missions through there and, and kind of get used to uh, working with each other, learning, learning the equipment and using the equipment. They had a, a couple of rules where like, if you're running a mission and let's say that somebody comes and attacks your, your entry point and one of the soldiers dies, they die, then they would have to be medevac and then they would have to wait because this was all training. So they would act like they're dead. They would go into the, to the medical area. They would wait there for a minute and then they would get sent back to their unit. But the unit itself had to continue the mission without them for the rest of the, the day. I believe that's how it worked. Um, once the training was done, we went back to Alaska and throughout the next couple months, we would pretty much uh, get ready for deployment again, um, back to Afghanistan. And from what I understood back then, if I remember right, the whole mission for our deployment was aside from winning the hearts and minds of people, which everybody knew what that meant. Um, it was more to help the government there vote for their president, which, um, well, that one year they, they did, they voted for Amit Karzai, but yeah, that was the, uh, the main mission for us when we deployed there. You were training for deployment because you got back in 08 and then went into active duty, did all of yes. your training and then remained in Alaska until deployed again. Yes, that's correct. And so we did we're deployed again in 09. Yes. For this deployment, it was, uh, I think it was like a 13, no, it was a 12 month deployment, but yes, uh, in 09 in I think it was February. Yes. So in February we deployed 2009 and it was going to be a 12 month deployment. So we'd be back in 2010. So we need to go uh, win the hearts and minds of the people of Afghanistan. Right. Right. That's, that's what we had. That's what we were told. <laughs> we deployed in 09 and this time obviously would be different because I'm in an infantry unit an airborne infantry unit. And once arriving to Afghanistan, we went through Bagram and then we were sent out to, um, Paktika province. And that's like the Southeast portion of Afghanistan. And we were assigned to at least my company. So 
Right now we were, I was an alpha company and we were assigned to FOB Wazikwa is what it was called. And it was a Ford operation base. It was a small base, but we were to run uh, operations through that area. So we did a lot of, uh, a lot of patrols to get to know the people and we didn't like specifically me and the, the privates didn't really talk to anyone. We're more like the security team, but the platoon leader and the company commander, the like those were the people that were doing a, a lot of the interactions out there. We pretty much were just the security team. We were also assigned to um, a Afghan National Police unit and an Afghan National Army unit. It was really just the units that were running the area there. So we would be uh, running missions with them together at times, We especially when we needed interpreters. But usually we had an interpreter with us. We would run missions together and We'd also have to train them so that we kind of have a night, we could be able to work together right? and also to help them actually manage and pull security correctly. So there were times where we would have to do some battle drills. And I just remember just running just battle drills with them or like we'd go to an entry control point and we'd work together and I'll teach them how to, how to run the entry control point and pull security and how to uh, search people and inspect cars and search the cars and Stuff like that is what we kind of train to, to help them uh, learn. So when we get deployed, we have like a two week vacation time where we would um, be pulled off the line and then sent back home for a couple of weeks. And then we'd have to return. It's more like a R and R, but we had this one soldier that from our unit that decided to go R and R and went back home and then he really didn't report back and didn't return. So he just kind of stayed back in the States. We didn't really know any of it until we were informed like, hey, he's not coming back. So we're just going to get him off your roster kind of thing. And then he dealt with whatever consequence that that was. I don't, I don't remember what it was or really looked into it because I couldn't. And by the time we were done with the deployment, that was out of our minds. But that was an incident that was, it, it was kind of interesting to see by interesting, I mean, kind of like to have a buddy that was here with you, running missions with you, and then go on his vacation, just a normal vacation, then not come back or not want to come back. And he was just like, Hey, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. Kind of thing. And it just, it didn't hit well with the, uh, with the, with, with the group or the squad. But, uh, nonetheless, we just continued with our daily missions. And because of the tasks that we did, it just, we really, or at least I didn't really think about it much. It was just like, oh, okay, he's gone. So we just kept going. But then in, uh, I believe July, we had one of our, one of our soldiers from the, uh, from our unit that had walked off base and he also decided to, that he was done with whatever he was doing, but he decided to walk off base and just wander. At least that's what, uh, what we heard that he just wandered off base, and then he got captured by the Taliban. And that's where a lot of uh, our mission changed, because before we were just out there patrolling, doing our, our regular patrols and interacting with the villages, the village elders, and with the people training the, uh, the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Police, and just the basics uh, of patrolling. We were doing a lot of that work. But once we heard that Bergdahl happened, so we kind of moved away from what we were doing into a more search party, I guess you could say. I think our platoon was one of the platoons that was 
I've, I'm sure they used a lot of other units to search, but um, at the time during my deployment, I felt like they only picked us to go do missions. And what we would do is we'd go out or in a helicopter, get dropped off in a certain area, and then we'd just pull security there, just uh, uh-huh. observe what's going on, who's around there, see if there's uh, anything, any any information on Birdall, anything that we could gather really to see if we could find him. So we were really searching for him. And there were there were times where we went out for a couple of days or where we went out and we'd run out of food or water and we'd have to get resupplied. Some of us, because of the heat, really passed out and had to get IVs in us. And then we'd have to call Medivac to come and get these guys out of and, and help them recover because of the heat and just the whole environment. Once we were chosen to go and start looking for Bergdahl, it just like the whole attitude of our unit kind of went down like negative. Like they were just mad about us having to go out every single time. They were mad about Bergdahl leaving their posts and getting captured. It was just an anger that started building. It just like we were complaining a lot and then starting to see our, our guys really just fall out and get meta back that also didn't go well with us and just our attitude towards the now search party, I guess, uh, searching for a Bergdahl, it just, it didn't land well and it was, it didn't help the morale of the whole group or, or our unit. So, and so like, as you're describing it, and I know a lot of people through the military kind of describe it like it's a family or, or a brother band, you know? Yeah. And- well, that's the thing. Like you have, you have that that family kind of environment. And then you experience one of them just like turns their back on, on you. Really. It's what it felt like. And then you were assigned to go pull him back and just like try to recover him. It just, it, it doesn't feel good. In like you explained, and I, I don't know how deep you want to get into it, but like, I mean, you're out there for a long time looking for him. Right. I mean, it's not just like a, Hey, Go out for a few hours. I mean, no, it was days at a time. Like we'd be out there a few days, like sleeping out in the, under the skies, really. It was a lot to take in, but we also knew that we had to, we had to finish the mission. So we had to go out and try to come back and, and take care of whoever else was there, take care of the rest of the family. Although we were also searching for one, but we never really. Not that I know we, we, we didn't find any evidence or any traces or anything like that, or at least that they communicated to us. We didn't really find anything, but we were out there looking every single day and it was draining of our energy and morale. And, and, and the, the more that we were there, the more that, that we kind of got upset about it and complained even more. And were you in friendly territory in these searches? No, we were, we were out there. There, There's one mission that I remember that we were assigned to a a small, uh, a sniper team and we were the small kill team. And, um, we went out, uh, in the middle of the night, we went out in a vehicle, we got out and the moon wasn't up. So you didn't even have, uh, any lighting from the moon. So you're, you're just out there in the middle of the dark. We went out and we climbed a mountain. We stayed there for maybe a few hours um, before the sun rose, we moved again to another location that was higher in the mountain where our mission was to overwatch a road coming in and going into a certain uh, town. 
But we set up camp up in the mountain, um, overviewing this road. There was a field in front of us and the road kind of went through the right side of the field and went straight up to the town. But we were out there, I think maybe like three days, just stationed there watching, um, observing who comes and goes, what comes and goes, just anything that we, we can identify, we just gather all that information and report it up. That was quite interesting because as we were there, we, we didn't really move much because nobody, I don't think anybody knew that we were there. We, we kind of snuck up there and during the, the few days that we were up there, there was a guy or a shepherd that had a, a lot of sheep that came around the mountain and down the mountain. And it was just interesting because you just start seeing sheep around, just climbing around. And it was like a big flock of sheep. But yeah, you would have uh, all these sheep come down the mountain and into that field that we were kind of watching. That field in the middle was a tree and they all kind of gathered around the, around the tree in the field. And then the shepherd kind of hung out under the tree where there was, it was the only shade there was. He hung out there for maybe half of the day and the sheep would like ate the grass and just hang out there and rested and. They were there for a while. And then after a few hours, the, the guy pretty much picked up and just left and went over the other side of the mountain. It was just an interesting uh, little thing that we noticed. I think that was the most exciting part of that mission. Aside from watching just random vehicles or mostly mo motorcycles just go through the road. And once we were done with that, we pretty much just climbed down and were picked up by the Afghan National Force, or I think it was the police, Afghan National Police, and we rode with them back to the the little outpost that we were we were in. But like stuff like that is what we did while we were searching for a bird dog. We just go out and just look around. There were times where we did face, like as we landed or as we took off, we started getting fire from from the ground. And by taking off in helicopters, because we were to a lot of helicopter missions where we just land we'd dismount and then the helicopter would go and then later on the helicopters will come and pick us up but we did a lot of those types of missions uh looking for for Bergdorf. and through the whole time everybody was complaining it just i don't know everybody was upset but that we had to continue to do these day after day and we didn't find any traces of Bergdorf. So it wasn't just us looking like our platoon or our company, but like the whole battalion was looking for them. And during the missions that we, that we were doing, there were a few people that, that really just faced opposition and they had to try to defend themselves. And in the end, uh, we had some casualties where a couple of, uh, of our men were, were killed and that didn't like. It just, it didn't help with the situations because everybody was mad already that this guy, we felt betrayed by this guy. And then now we're losing people um, because we're out there trying to look for a Bergdahl. And then a lot of us felt that it just, it wasn't fair. It, it like, why, why are we losing more people because of this one guy that ultimately didn't want to be with us? If you think about it, it feels, it feels, um, I guess it hurts more because it feels like we're family. And then now one part of your family betrays you. And then as you're trying to 
to reach out, like you have other family members that don't make it. Yeah. And it just, it, it just builds on the, on the anger, I guess, like that we feel, um, because of it. And you get all these emotions from being separated and it is just, it was a tough, a, a, a tough time to try to stay focused and have a good attitude, really. Like it just, it wasn't, a, I don't know, it, it, it just built the anger in the whole unit and it, it wasn't well. You had one mission and then all of a sudden there's a new mission. Yeah, and we're doing it back to back and just, and we don't get any rest. It's just like the only rest you can, you get is from like, while we're out there just trying to sleep in the, on the ground and you have security around. And then you're in the middle of nowhere. I, it feels like you're just under the sky and just, you don't get good rest because you got to keep your, keep one eye closed, the other eye open. And then hearing with the losses from our unit, it just, it doesn't help at all. And by the end, uh. We really diverted from our initial mission to searching for Bergdahl. And once the time came up for us to redeploy back home, like we still didn't have Bergdahl and we had less people with us and we, we just didn't, we just couldn't find them. It, it just, I don't know. I guess for me, it just felt like an, it was an almost like a failure. He could, he could say like we. I don't know. It was just tough, um, just going through it all. And then in the end, coming back with, without him, I'm sure the following unit, uh, continued the search, but we just had to go back home and just pack everything and go back. And then once coming back, we had to have a fallen comrade ceremony. I think that's where a lot of the people kind of felt it even more as a unit, because during this fallen comrade ceremony, we gathered around the company's headquarters and they had a plaque with the names of all the fallen comrades and on a rock that was displayed in front of that. And it was just like, it was, I guess it, it was tough, but that's where you saw a lot of emotions just come out of the men during that ceremony. Cause it, even it just, I don't know, it, it's just tough to go through that and having people having just lose the people that you went out with and they're not back. And then we deal with the families that, um, that came over or if they had families, um, on the base, now what, it was a tough time trying to go through that. And a lot of the men, they all they knew was drinking. So they would, uh, they would go out in the weekend and they would drink just to cope with the whole situation. It just, that comes with the military. Just a lot of the times it's tough and all we could do as a family is go out together, but we end up drinking and just, it, it, it just doesn't help overall. Like looking back, it's, it's not the right way to deal with laws, but that's the way that we did. Just creating kind of a numbing effect. To what yeah. was really happening. Right. It, it, it was just, it was just a tough situation. And that fallen comrade ceremony that we had for them, it was very emotional.
But after, after all that, we just went out and continued our mission to either resettle in and then prep for whatever was coming up next. We continued our training daily. We try to just move on. But a lot of the times uh, we talk about it, we'd be upset at Bergdahl still. And it was just a lot of anger that was uh, built into the unit and it wasn't healthy. And that's where a lot of the guys started taking drugs. There was a drug that was smoked, almost like weed, but it, it wasn't detectable by the urinalysis test, I guess. It just wasn't detectable. So a lot of the men kind of, including me, kind of started using that drug for a while. And then once the commanders started finding out that they had soldiers uh, on drugs, they started trying to crack down on, on this drug and trying to find out where what it was and who's using it and all of that. And this and, is back in Alaska? Yes, this is, this is all back in Alaska. Okay. A, lot of the, a lot of the men in the company did use the drug, but we hid it well from the commanders until they started really searching and cracking down. They started doing searches like room searches, like room to room, pretty much searching through every little thing that we had. And then finally, after they started doing those searches, they started finding uh, traces or like wrappers and stuff like that from the soldiers. And that's where kind of a lot of, like in my career, it started changing because after that search, they did find wrappers and stuff like that in one of our rooms. So when they did that, they would gather everybody that was in the room. They're like, all right, who says this? Or, or like, we'll just punish everyone. And when they found the stuff in, in my room, they gathered, um, the ones that were in the room and they started like, all right, well, you guys are going to go get investigated and interrogated, I guess, or with the military police. But as we were going, the first sergeant kind of turned and we're like, all right, who's is this? Like, like, I don't want to take all of you guys in. It's just who, like, who does it belong to? And that's where I kind of was like, all right, well, it's mine. And once I said that, then the first sergeant quickly was like, all right, I'll, the rest of you just leave, just go back. But that's where I fessed up for what was not only mine, but ours kind of thing. But at the time I just took the hit really is what it was. I was interrogated by the military police. And then after that, I was court-martialed for possession of that drug. And the result of the court-martial was fines and I was put in jail for a time. And it's interesting because the, the time that I spent in jail was the Christmas of 2010, I believe, and New Year's of 2011. So I spent that time in jail after the court-martial. And once I was back, they really limited the things that I would train with. So for the rest of the time that I was there, which was, I think it was like three more months, I wasn't able to participate in the company training or anything like that. They would almost restrict me from doing anything. I just pretty much just walked around with them. But overall, I was still going through that process. And because I had spent more than five years in the military, they actually had a panel where they talked and they're like, hey, we kind of got together and, we're, and we, we talked about it and we're like, hey, I know you, like you messed up in this situation, but uh, we want to honor the five years that you had already spent with us. You're not, you're not just a, a brand new private that's doing uh, dumb things. But they, we talked about it and they're like, hey, look, there's a situation where we're getting ready to, we're going to get ready to deploy again. And if we are able to either get you out of the company or the unit, we could bring in new soldiers uh, to replace you. But they gave me the, the option whether to stay in the military and just go to a different unit or cut my contract short and just let me be done with the army entirely. 
And I chose the second option. After we spoke and we chose the second option, they pretty much chaptered me out and I was discharged April 22nd, 2011. And I pretty much packed everything and went home back to St. Paul Park, Minnesota. That's where my family was. But yeah, after, you know, with that unit, they, at the end of that year, they were finished. They pretty much finished getting ready to deploy again back to Afghanistan is what it was. But I wasn't with them and they were able to have time to replace the soldiers that weren't there. So then you go back into civilian world. Yes. So now I, I'm back home. I don't really have much, just whatever I had in my rucksack or like the backpack I had. I go home and during that summer, I don't know, I, I guess it, it just happened. It happened so fast that I didn't, it's hard to reintegrate is what it is. I didn't have any skills or by this time I had spent what? six, seven years in the military and now I'm back and I really don't know what to do. Like I'm back home, but now what, what, what I do, I had to come up with something. I, I looked into being law, law enforcement, but at the time the state required a four year degree, which I didn't have. To be a police officer. Right. Or even like a, a security guard, uh, although I had weapon knowledge of weapon systems and training like that, I didn't have any training with the state. So I couldn't even do any of that without actually going through the training. It was just, uh, it's, it was a tough summer is what it was. Not only that, but like all the military experience was fresh, like still kind of fresh. Like, Hey, I just went through, just got back from the deployment. I just went through the court martial, just spend whatever time in jail. And now I'm back here. I just, it was tough. And a lot of the times I, all I would do is just get my PT gear on and go out for running, just go run, just try to get away. And all we did was run like in the military, stay fit, try to go to the gym and run miles and miles and walk miles and miles, um, like in the road marches, but just coming back, it was, it was tough to settle in. So, and all I knew was running and exercising. So I, that's all I did. There was this one time where or not once, but like many times where I would just go out, just leave the house and run. And I would run from St. Paul Park all the way up to like near downtown St. Paul, close to 10 miles, just go out and run. How often have you been doing that type of running? Well, now, now never. I don't, I don't run 10 miles now. <laughs> but yeah, it's just like, what else, what else am I going to do? It's just at the time, I just didn't know. And I felt more lost and out of place. And it's, it's, it's just difficult to figure out what to do. Not only me, but a lot of other veterans that come out, they don't know what to do. Like afterward, like try to reintegrate and, and deal with the civilians. They just like some people do fine, but a lot of the people, especially the infantrymen, they, it's hard. And if you, if you think about it, like. All I did was out there was be homeless, like out in Afghanistan, just going from place to place. And you think about it now and see the, like the veterans that are homeless, they're, they're still living their experience in the military here in the States. And then also it, it didn't help that I was so mad at the, at the army overall, just the whole process that I had gone through just built anger in me. And when I got out, I didn't want to deal with anybody like anything with the military. I didn't apply for any benefits or whatever. I didn't take my, like a, the physical at the end. 
like to be disabled. Um, I know they, they give you a percentage. Like, I didn't want to do any of that. I didn't want to use the GI bill for, for anything. Just, I, I didn't want to do anything with the military. And I was just upset at the whole, just the whole experience. It just, it left me with being mad and just this rage in, in me. It just didn't, I didn't want anything to do with that. Even up to now, I don't really, after all these years, I, I don't search to, to do any of it. I don't really want to deal with the army anymore. It just, I don't know. It just left that in me. And I'm just, I just want to do my own thing without the army or the things that come with being a veteran is just. And what were some of the effects of military life? Like you're talking about, like there was the anger and there was, you know, somewhat of just the bitterness towards the army, but like overall, like just kind of this loss, this hopelessness almost of like, what do I do now? Like, I don't like I was in the military, now I'm in civilian world. But like, where did you really start to see the effects of military life bleed over into like your personal life? I think they were they were there from the beginning, but I I didn't notice like overall, you're just in the in that state. You don't really notice it until either someone pointed out or you kind of snap out of it. But when I got back, my mom, I went back to my mom's house and lived with her for a while. And she went to church in Bloomington, uh, Minnesota. And like she invited me, so I'd, I'd go every now and then. And the pastor from that church did live in St. Paul. And sometimes I would, that's where I'd go to. Like I would run over to his house 10 miles away. And then I'd arrive there. And from what I remember, it's like one time I arrived there and just knocked at his door and he saw the, the state that I was in. Like I didn't, I didn't recognize it. I was just like, I'm mad. I'm just going to go out for a run or whatever. But he recognized something and he's like, wow, I got to. I got to spend time with him, like, especially if he's a, a new, new member of the church, he's trying to like get everything straight, but he helped a lot in trying to help me uh, see it. Cause like I'd go and he'd be like, wow, let's, let's go to the YMCA. I'll spend time with you. Like I'll, I'll be your friend and we'll hang out together. Let's do things together is what it was. And I think maybe that's uh that's one thing that I, I needed or, or we need uh, as veterans that come out, like just someone to be there. And he was one of the, the first people that I, that I appreciate a lot because at the time I didn't, I didn't know what I was going through. It just, I just got back and I'm trying to find out my way in life and trying to figure out what to do in, in, in this life after experiencing loss and going through all these, this whole experience of uh, my military career, it just, that second deployment, it just hit harder. And then after that, I got out and now what? But he, he did help me. And, and then my sister also, um, invited me to her church and that's where one Wednesday night I went to her church and that's where, um, it's funny cause I don't recall what was preached, but, uh, but I did experience, um, the Holy spirit there and just, it just drew me to the altar. And that's where I kind of felt a new direction for me and actually pursuing God and reading and studying his word and trying to live this, uh, holy life of the Bible and just trying to study it and live it out. I feel like before that I was in a state of like hopelessness, like not knowing what to do and just with this loss and all these feelings that come with it, that in the end, I don't know what to do with it. But now, now I have a direction from that time on that Wednesday, that's where I started. Um, I think that's where like I hit the bottom and I started kind of to come up and I was like, all right, well, 
here's where I'm going to go and this is what I'm going to do. And that's where I, I started going to college and studying the Word of God and trying to live the Bible out. And you know what's crazy is that's actually the first night that I saw you because I had met your sister. Mm -hmm. And uh, my roommate was really good friends with your sister. Then the very next day, you show up at orientation. And I was like, wait a minute. It's so interesting. And I mean, this, this interview isn't about me. But I think what is so interesting is hearing, like you say, that that was the bottom for you. And then like things just started turning around. Like I didn't always know all of your backstory. And I mean, I'm sure there's things that as time goes on, you'll think of and then you'll get to share it. Maybe we'll have you come back on if you think of other fun things to talk about. <laughs> Isaac's actually um, a very funny guy. So we'll have to have a funny episode. Always. <laughs> no, but, but, but like look, looking back, like that's. Like it's what happens with veterans. If you look at veterans, a lot of the time, like, I know we don't like, I don't tell anybody. There's a lot of veterans like me that just keep their experience to themselves and just try to live life without sharing it or anything like that. And, and a lot of them, they get stuck in that bottom end of their military experience. They might not make it out of there. Like a lot of them, they might just find drugs and that's their go-to point or alcohol or whatever it is. And well, for me, I thank God that he found me and kind of was like, hey, here's this direction that I want you to, to head towards and to start striving for. And I chose it. And maybe a lot of, if you're listening and maybe you're in that down state and you need a direction. But like, I think the, the main thing that helped me was like, I made up my mind that I was like, you know what, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get out of where I'm at, like just start going up. One thing that was really amazing was I actually never realized the impact of your military career until we were almost graduated and news came out about Bergdahl. And that was probably the first time there was actually any conversation about like, hey, this is something that's really big in my life from the military. Mm -hmm. And I remember that conversation with you. And some of that is almost still playing out to this day. There's still things that are happening with that. But what did that do for you when all of the news started coming out about Bergdahl being traded? Yeah. So aside from me trying to reintegrate back to the civilian world, there was also part of me that was like questioning as to like, why, why did Bergdahl leave? Like, why did I have to experience all this and that loss? And why did these guys have to pass while looking for Bergdahl? Like that was still in the back of my mind, kind of like, although I was headed towards the right direction, trying to get out of this emotional pit or this hopelessness that I had felt when I left the military, it still was a big part. And I try to stay up to date as to what's going on because I spend a lot of days just a lot of my time looking for him. And I'm just like, well, I'm not just going to forget about him. I got to figure out and try to stay up to date. And that's where I forget what year it was, but that's where they decided to trade five of the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay for Bergdahl. And they made the trade. And I feel like after that came out, I was, that's where I kind of felt more open to speak to close friends. And that's who you were at the time, oh. even like my family. I don't, I don't think I've even now, I don't think I've told them, but yeah, at the time it was, it was almost like a relief, um, especially when he got home. Although like, yes, uh, I was, I was upset. And I know a lot of the comrades from my company even 
human now might still be upset or angry at Bergdahl. And I know there's a lot of people that are just mad at what he did and what happened. But for some reason, uh, just seeing him come back, it just almost felt like a closure or like just a relief, just like, oh, he made it back kind of thing. And maybe that kind of triggered me to kind of open up a little bit because it was almost done. I'm, I'm like, that search was done. The search that we started um, after all these years, it's it's finished. We brought him back. Mm. And although Bergdahl's part in coming back and getting whatever administrative things that happened to him after he came back, to me, that didn't really matter. Like, I know a lot of people, they're still mad and they maybe want to lock him up or whatever. But in, in my point of view, it just that search that we started is done and we brought him back. And although whatever motives he had with leaving and whatever happened in between, none of that mattered to me anymore. It was a relief of just hearing that he came back. And then after a while, I continued to stay up to date as to like his court dates and what was going on. But after a while, I was just like, you know what? Like, that's fine. Like you, whatever it is that society or the military wants to do with him, whatever happens, happens. But in my book, in my end, it's finished. We, we finished the cert and we brought him back and he's all right. And whatever consequences that he's going to face after the decision of, of leaving, that's on his side. But on my end, it was a relief and that helped a lot to know that he was back. As we kind of come to a close, if you could answer the two questions I always ask at the end. Number one, if you could look back at people that have walked in your shoes and encourage them with what you know now, being on this side of your story, what would you say? And number two, how can non-veterans support veterans? One thing I can share is like, although, especially with the a veteran that that experience, whatever experience, because each, each soldier's experience is different. It's not always the same. Like if you look back at the story, like my first deployment was way different from the second one, but everybody's experience in the military is different. And whatever it is that once you, that you're going through, if you, you're trying to reintegrate and if you're out and you're trying to figure out what to do, it's, uh, I think the biggest one is don't, don't quit. Just keep going. There is hope out there that, that you, you'll find that you will try to bring you back and there's where you could refocus your life into whatever it is that you, you really decide to do. I think the main thing is that, um, you need to accept what you experience. Like, yes, that's whatever, it, if it's positive or negative, I know a lot of the times with me, I just didn't want to talk about. Uh, especially the the time where I spend in jail on the court martial and all of that, like, yeah, that was a bad experience, like for me personally. And it just didn't, I don't want to share it with anybody, but it's just a chapter in your life that you've gone through and you can move on from there. You can go out and do better in your life and experience your life like fully. I know may maybe a lot of people or a lot of veterans they fall back into the drugs and alcohol situation and they might get stuck there, but there's something better in this life that you can experience that you can, I guess, strive through and choose to live for. And the biggest thing from that I want to say is just don't give up. Don't, don't, don't take that opportunity of living out your life away. There's a life that you can live and it's just 
you will have to work for it, but you want to focus on it and just, just live it out. Don't let it go to waste. Wherever you're at, you can keep going. You can get out. Even if it's, uh, if you're in your, in your bottom end of whatever situation you can, you can climb out of there. Like you just got to not give up and just keep going through and just keep, keep working for it and, and get out of there. Um, there is, uh, there is support that you can have. And, and this is more for the family members that, um, that have veterans. A lot of them, I know they, even when I talk to my family, they, they don't know what I experienced. They don't. And even when I tell them, they, they might not understand, like they don't understand it all. They don't understand the feeling or have an idea of what it means to, to, to go through, through the war, be shot at or, or court-martialed or whatever it is that you experience in your military career, like your siblings and your parents, they, I guess if you have a, a veteran, a family member, like I think the biggest thing that you can do is to, to listen to them. Like, yeah, you're not going to understand or, or picture everything that they're saying, but you can help by listening actively, ask them questions. And if, if they choose not to open up, I guess don't, don't frown upon them, but it just, just wait for them to open up. But the biggest thing is to be there for them, be there for that veteran that, um, that may be struggling internally. Cause a lot of, especially a lot of men that they, they don't like to share their feelings or they want to tough it out and, and, and do all these things that typical men, men do. That's what we do. We just try to push through and just keep going. But some of them, it may not, they might, might not be able to do it by themselves and they might be in at their bottom end where they're just saying, I want to give up. This is not, it's not what I want to do, but as a family member, as a friend of a veteran, that's, that's where you can come in and just listen to them and just hear their story and just be with them. Really reiterating the act of listening, but just the availability to be there. Yes, that's, I feel like that's the biggest thing that you can do just to support a veteran, like whatever stage that he's in, if it's, we just got out or whatever, just be there. Cause that hopelessness that I felt when I got out, it might be there for everybody. It might not, but especially with me, I got what, eight siblings, like a veteran might, may have their family and friends there with them, but they, they might still feel hopeless. I mean. And they're from their experience, if they don't speak it out and, and share it, but the more that you're there for the, um, for your friends, your veterans friends, um, I think the more that they'll trust you and open up to you, but that availability is important. Well, Isaac, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I know we didn't talk about it, but you wrote a song. Yes, I did. I did write a song. And what was the song about? So the song that I wrote was about my first deployment and the, the experience I, I've had there. And it, uh, it's a song that we wrote with the whole male movement team there. It was more just me just because I like music. It just, I'm like, hey, let's write a song. And at first it was a joke, but because I wrote the song on paper and I, I think I still have the paper hidden somewhere in one of these tough boxes. 
And it goes like this. I says, uh, I wake up at six o'clock. Sergeant boss tells me to get up. I jump down from my bed and then I start to eat some bread. I get dressed and walk out the door. Nothing new that I'm hoping for. Same crap, just different toilet, unloading mail and then helping sort it. And the second verse goes like sitting in the office from eight to six. Just another day that I can't fix. Waiting on a customer to come right in. I've got to inspect the box that he brings with him. The chorus goes just another day in JBAD. Unloading the planes in JBAD. Putting mail away in JBAD. Just another day. Then the bridge goes, uh, now I've got to watch or LNE. I got to watch the Haji for you and me. And it's just another day in JBAD. And then the LNE is a local national uh, escort. So back in the deployment, we had um, local nationals. We'd, uh, we'd bring them on the base so that they could uh, build or pretty much work on the base. And we escorted them on the, to the base and watched them, really supervised them um, to build like three buildings what they built. But we had to watch them. I wake up at six o'clock. The sergeant boss tells me to get up. I jump down from my bed and then I start to eat some bread. I get dressed. Happy Memorial Day, everyone. Today we honor the sacrifice of the fallen and their families. Say the Pain will be back on June 9th with its next episode. And until then, make a difference. <laughs>